This is episode 231 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Levi Vonk and Border Hacker. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm so honored to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Levi Vonk with me. And if that doesn't pretend an excellent show, I don't know what does. What a great (laughs) name. Welcome, Levi. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll introduce him. He's an author, photographer, and PhD candidate in medical anthropology at UC Berkeley. He writes about migration, violence, otherness, and borders. And his first book, Border Hacker, was just published. It's a work of narrative nonfiction and was published by Bold Type Books from Achette. And uh, I'll just mention that's a really interesting publisher now. I pay a lot of attention to the books that come out under that label. And no surprise, Border Hacker is also really interesting. I think we're going to have a great show today talking about it. That book, Levi says, is the culmination of seven years of intensive journalistic and ethnographic labor, and was written with the ambitious goal of inventing a new literary subgenre, multi-narrator nonfiction. And we'll talk about those different narrators in a minute. And you're originally from Georgia. Is that right, Levi? I am. I'm from a a little tiny town uh, in Georgia called, in Georgia, we go by county. So it's called Camden County, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Camden County, Georgia. I think you mentioned that in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have been all over the place. It's really uh, you have an interesting story and a really interesting book. So congratulations. It's really remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. That's really kind of you. So I'm going to introduce the book a little bit. It reads like a thriller, though there's no happy ending. And in fact, if you're looking for satisfactory answers, solutions, denouements, or conclusions, this isn't the book that will do that. Uh, The book is dedicated to Alex's children, wherever they may be. So it opens with a mystery that drives part of the book. But as the dedication implies, we don't really know where they are. And it really sets an interesting and accurate theme for the whole book. The book's subtitle is a tale of treachery, trafficking, and two friends on the run, which is sort of right, although it is many tales in one, many stories of individual migrants and their pinball existence of rattling around between different countries, dealing with the mundane but pressing daily issues of food and money, but also being whipsawed by changing, confusing, and unreasonable policies of temporary governments, while they're also trying to avoid being exploited, abused, enslaved, killed, or otherwise victimized. 
I don't really know what to make of this book, but I do know that I read it extremely quickly. And I won't say to my audience that you should read it because that makes it sound obligatory and boring. But more, I would say, I think that you'll want to read it for the stories, the character development, and really a, some peek behind the curtain of those things that we hear about vaguely in the press, kind of from time to time when it suits someone's political purpose about what is happening with immigration. So let's start here, if you don't mind, Levi. Early in the book, you refer to prestige journalists with an observation about you know, kind of the experience that they have when they're covering a story, what hotel they stay in and what they see. And sort of to mm -hmm. leap in deep here, if you could encourage them to provide better coverage, whatever that means to you, what would you ask them to do? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because uh, in it, I hear kind of two things. One is like a, an, an individual, like what could an individual prestige journalist do versus what could prestige outlets do to change the structure of journalism as a whole, right? So I think the simple answer and the individual answer would be stay a little longer and try mm -hmm. to stay in the places where migrants are. I, I While I was uh, living and working in Mexico for this book, I would be living in the migrant shelters and we would see people from these prestige outlets come in, do an interview for an hour, two hours, and then they'd leave. And then they write it up and then it's in the newspaper all over the US in a week or whatever. And I would think, geez, I don't really think they got any kind of sense of what's actually happening here at all, right? And this is a common criticism you hear. And, and it's one I feel sensitive to is I've worked as a freelance journalist and you can't always spend a week in a place. But that being said, sometimes I think it's also a very convenient excuse right? To go back to your hotel and it's nicer and it's easier. So my, my ask for individual journalists would be stay longer and stay in the places where migrants are staying. Uh, stay in the migrant shelters, live there for at least a few days, if not longer, to really try to get some kind of sense of a place and be aware that even if you're there for a few days, you know, you, you, it's, you're never going to get the full story. I, I haven't gotten the full story. I've been doing this for over seven years now, right? So, so that's one. Uh, the other thing, though, I would say, like, structurally, I would really love American journalism and, and Western journalism or, or the global North journalism, whatever you want to call it. I would like these prestige outlets to spend more, like, put people on the ground for longer. You know, this is a structural problem. It's the outlet doesn't want to spend as much money. It doesn't want to pay for you to be there for long. But if we care about these stories and we really actually think that they're important, then we're going to need people on the ground. And, it, and it, it's existed in American journalism before, right? We used to have a lot more people. We'd send journalists out to stay in Mexico for longer periods of time. We, the, the Mexican uh, Bureau, for instance, might have like many journalists working and reporting stories. And, and today, because of cuts and trying to get as much, squeeze as much profit as possible out of journalism, a lot of times we don't let those journalists go report on the ground for weeks at a time to get that really crucial, important story. So I would, I would appeal to ultimately to the structure of American journalism and these prestige outlets to say, you need to be spending more money on these stories and letting people stay longer. Yeah, that's a really interesting comment that I hadn't really thought about before. The, the thing that you said in there that caught my ear, especially was, do we care? Right. Yeah, yeah sure. it's really an investment. Right. And so when we don't spend very much time and it is a cursory thing just to flash something up. Yeah. That the message in there is clear that we don't care 
And that, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a problem, right? It is. It is. And and I, I believe though, that, you know, people in some sense are also what you make them and audiences are no different. Hmm. And we have accustomed our audience to only clicking on very shallow clickbaity news sources these days. And we say, oh, we justify it because that's what people want. And in some sense, that's true. But if you're at the New York Times, if you're at the Los Angeles Times, you're at the Guardian, you run and you drive the narrative. And in some sense, you get to shape what people think is important. And so I would I would ask that we think through that a little more and try to appeal to larger audiences and say, this is important and you need to pay attention more. Yeah, I think your book's a really great model for that, right? Because I Thank didn't you. I didn't pick up the book thinking I need to read about immigration. I was just captured by the book, right? Thank and you. so that works, right? That strategy mm-hmm. that you're talking about works because now I care a whole lot more about immigration than I did 72 hours ago. So, sure. yeah, that I mean it, it's a reasonable strategy. So switching gears on you here a little bit, although it could be related, how do you feel or do you have any observations for us about the killing of journalists in Mexico over the last two years? Oh, it's just terrible. I mean, it's it's a real tragedy. Um, I have many thoughts, but I mean, the first is just, you know, a, a deep pain that exists in the Mexican journalism community. And, and it's, it's worth stating for American audiences who might not be as familiar with it, it's all Mexican journalists, more or less, right? So I, going out and doing research for my book and doing freelance journalism, there are times where I take risks as well. But because I am white, because I have an American passport, and because people can easily identify me as American, um, I'm not going to face generally the same kind of level of violence and threats that Mexican journalists face day in and day out. For a short time before the war in Ukraine, Mexico was the uh, most dangerous country in the world for journalists. And if, if you take out countries that aren't at war, Mexico still is. And it has been for an incredibly long time. Before it was Syria, and Syria was the top country, but that's because of the war there. But Mexico was always number two. So, so it's, it's intensely dangerous for journalists. The work that they're doing, of course, mainly, often what gets them killed is tracking corruption, tracking drug violence human trafficking, and trying to expose the people who uh, you know, are, are wrapped up and uh, dictating uh, th- this kind of nefarious crime within Mexico. The tricky part is, of course, that you start talking about drug crime very quickly. You are also talking about involvement with American agencies the, yeah. and the fact that, that the U.S. is very, very bound up in this as well. And so I, I, I really say this is not just a Mexican problem that Mexican journalists are being killed. They're reporting on the kind of nefarious actions of the U.S. government that are happening in Mexico, too. And sometimes they, they suffer the consequences for that as well. I think that's one thing that comes out in your book is there's a whole lot of things happening in Mexico that are the result of American decision-making, not just in an indirect way, but direct consequences of decisions that are being made by Americans about what should happen at the border. And that, you know, that, (laughs) that really gives me a very creepy feeling. It's a little bit too complicated for us to go into in too much depth here. But again, for my audience, that's something that you probably want to read the book just to get some understanding of that the the reach of the U.S. government into Mexico is is really intense. 
<laughs> it's not it's not just on the periphery it's really involved in mexico and so a lot of the things that we think of as oh well that's mexico yeah not really you know the impact of the us is really profound there do you have anything to add to that levi yeah i mean uh, i i think that's spot on and i think the history of mexico um, from the 19th century onward, at least, is a, is a history of having to deal with a, a large imperial power to its north that often tries to meddle in its in its national decision making and does so very successfully, right? Um, and so when we we can't ever today isolate a problem in Mexico as purely Mexican, and that is perhaps the most true in some sense with immigration specifically. So part of the book, what we get into in Border Hacker is the fact that the U.S. has struck a very secret pact with Mexico to externalize our southern border into Mexico itself. And we pay Mexico millions and millions of dollars every year to catch and deport as many migrants as possible, as quickly and as quietly as possible before they can reach our border and ask for asylum. And we ask Mexico to specifically target women and children because they're the people who will become most sympathetic in U.S. media. So we've, we've really invented an incredibly insidious and secret immigration policy that Americans know very little about. Yeah, it's really nefarious. Well, to switch gears, I do hear, <laughs> I, have, I have a question about humor. So I'm Great. Well. Hey, I'm yeah. the guy at the party who always brings the party. Someone says, well, what do you do? And I say, oh, get ready. Here it goes. Everyone's <laughs> going to be sad now. So, <laughs> well, well, we'll flip that around here. We'll try and bring in some, uh, yeah, some humor to this because the book is actually quite funny in several places. Sometimes it's sort of black humor, but Thank you. Thank you you. Know, we tried really hard to make it funny as well. Okay. That's, that's my question. Cause there are times when, you know, life is just absurd, right? And Absolutely. There were, there were places like that in the storytelling. And there was one scene that I particularly remembered where it, as you were participating in the migrant so-called caravan, this clown shows up and there's a bunch of confusion. I don't want to spoil it for you, but yeah. Can you tell us about that scene? Sure. Yeah. This is a, you're, what you're talking about is, yes, yeah, the very beginning of the book, right as I begin marching on what this, this thing is called a migrant caravan. You know, back in 2015, when I started, no one knew what a migrant caravan was, including me. So I was, it was all new to me. It wasn't in the U.S. media yet at all. And so to, to start the caravan, the organizers had hired, but they'd forgotten. They, they had hired this, I guess you could call him a street performer. He was, he was in clown makeup but he was playing a trumpet. And, and as we, well, I wasn't, but I was, I was there in the background. Uh, the leaders were giving television interviews and whatever. Suddenly this man wanders up. He kind of looks at us for a second. And he's, he has clown makeup on. And then he starts blasting what I can only describe, I think is like a funeral dirge. It, it, it made no sense, <laughs> the kind of tune. And he wasn't particularly skilled at, at playing the trumpet either. And uh, we all just kind of looked at him like, what is going on? I had no idea. And, and someone yelled, shut up, just shut up. You're ruining the television interview. And, uh, and then someone realized, oh, wait, I think I booked him. <laughs> I think he was supposed to provide some pop and circumstance for our, our send off. <laughs> and the poor guy was sitting there so confused. He had no idea what he's like, wait, you paid me to do this. And no one knew why it was so, and that really set the tone for, for this particular migrant caravan, which was uh, incredibly disorganized, but at times incredibly funny as well. I was wondering, as you and Alex 
we haven't talked, we haven't explained very much about that, but. Oh yeah. And his, his name's Axel, just so you know. Oh, sorry. I keep, I keep doing that wrong. Yeah. No worries. A- Axel. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, which I should not, I, I shouldn't forget because it was kind of a running joke in our family that when my baby sister was born, we were going to name him Axel. If it, oh, really? If it was a boy. Yeah. So I, oh, I really, okay. sh- I shouldn't denigrate that funny uh, moment <laughs> in our family history. So Border Hacker, that is a reference to Axel. You know, we mentioned the subtitle where it's a story of a friendship between the two of you. And Axel is an extraordinary character, just an extremely interesting person. He is. And, there, you know, quite a bit of the book is about your evolving relationship with him and trying to understand what's happened to him in his life, where he comes from. And he's a, a Black Latino uh, from Guatemala, or, mm-hmm. or I should say probably of Guatemalan heritage. Mm-hmm. Actually, why don't you describe him instead of me uh, risking uh, sure. getting it wrong? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, no. So yeah, Axel was born in Guatemala and he's Afro-Latino. And, but he, when he was a baby, when he was one year old, his, his mother fled the Guatemalan Civil War and relocated to New York. And he grew up in New York, uh, mostly on Long Island, but he bounces around in his story around the city. And it's just, you know, so New York. He had never really lived in Guatemala. He had no memories of Guatemala. But when he was deported, he got in a minor traffic accident. He was rear-ended one day while he, was, he says he was driving us into kindergarten in Long Island. Uh, and he was rear-ended from behind. And uh, when he didn't have insurance, the police got called. Then ICE got called. The next thing he knows, he's back on a plane to Guatemala, a country that he didn't know at all. But when he got there, one of the most frustrating things and something that we really try to highlight in the story is that when he arrived, Guatemala did not recognize him as a citizen either, because they said that his documents, his original documents had been destroyed in a hurricane in 1998, which is Hurricane Mitch, which is actually very common at the time. This is not unique to Axel. Uh, I've, I've met multiple migrants and just many people in Guatemala who, who have similar stories about, you know, a lot of things are not digitized in Guatemala yet. You have one birth certificate at this tiny municipal hall. If something happens, if there's a hurricane, if there's a fire, your documents get burned up. And now guess what? Guatemala doesn't recognize you as a citizen anymore. And it's incredibly costly and incredibly time consuming thing to try to get those documents back and make the state recognize you as a citizen. So after his deportation, Axel quickly learned that he was stateless. He also couldn't work in Guatemala. He didn't qualify for social services there for all intents and purposes. He wasn't Guatemala, um, but he didn't belong anywhere else either. And so he said, well, forget it. I'm going back up to the U.S. where my family is and going to try to reunite reunite with them. And it was shortly after he made that decision and crossed back into southern Mexico that we both met up on the migrant caravan. He's such an interesting character, and we get to know a lot about him during the book, although, you know, lots of questions still remain, which I think Mm -hmm. is often true for, for people who have complicated lives. Absolutely. How we decide to characterize those lives and the stories that we tell and then tell ourselves. And, you know, all of this is is really an interesting parts of the book, all of those complicated questions. But I did wonder if part of the mutual attraction between the two of you, you felt was based on some appreciation for the absurdity and the humor that of the situations you would find yourself in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Like, you know, as, as uh, your listeners can tell by now, there are aspects of the book that are very dark where, you know, we're trying to critique this massive militarized immigration system. It's not an easy thing. It can feel incredibly overwhelming. You think, what does our world come to? 
But at the same time, something that I really wanted to come through in the book was the friendship between Axel and me and the fact that Axel is hilarious. And I don't know if I'm very funny, but I at least I, I really appreciate his humor. And maybe I can play his straight man in, in a certain sense. But Axel has a wonderful sense of humor. I mean, again, let's talk about someone who, who uh, you know, he, after his deportation, stateless, no money, suddenly dropped into the middle of Mexico with gangs and cartels and people trying to exploit him in an incredibly dire, horrific situation. But what comes through in Axel's voice, I hope, constantly in the book, is that he can laugh about it at the same time. And there's a, a, a real courage, I think, in being able to laugh at death in a certain sense. And a real art, an art of living that Axel has that, that I, I wanted to try to communicate with readers to, to not just show uh, someone who's resilient, but, but more than resilient in some ways. You know, he's resourceful and he's funny and he can make a quick-witted joke. Um, and I tried very, very hard to give space in the book to let Axel's humor and his own voice shine through as much as possible, because I think they're the best parts of the book. When I talk, it's, it's fine. But when Axel talks, he sings, you know, it's, it's an it's a entirely different thing. You do wonder how much of humor is really a critical tool in survivorship. Right. Because he is a survivor. He and, is. you know, we we definitely admire him for that. But yeah, you wonder if that's just, you need to have that kind of attitude in order to survive or you would just just collapse. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, to step back here for a second, one of the things that I did appreciate about the book was just your straightforward storytelling of things that you observed, funny, tragic, all of those things. And I kind of like that you made some decisions to provide information without much commentary. Like there's a scene while you're walking of the men buying duct tape at a store and then binding their feet with them because their feet were so damaged, injured from uh, walking. Yes. I was curious as you were writing, how tempting was it to lapse into hyperbole and a rage when you describe those heartbreaking scenes? Oh, uh, ask my editor. You know, <laughs> the, uh <-huh. laughs> the amount of cutting we had to do, right? The amount of, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, part of, I think, what, what motivated me to write the book in some sense was there was an inarticulable rage inside yeah. me when I came back from the U.S. The things I had seen and, and to know that my own government was funding it and that many people were voting for it very happily, infuriated me. And at the same time, what I didn't want to do was to, you know, I, I, I Axel and I, were, when we were thinking about writing this book, we said, well, we want to reach, you know, not just kind of people who would normally read immigration books, but we want to read people who, or reach people who, who wouldn't read them normally. My rage is one thing, and in some sense, it's important, but the rage of migrants themselves, the people have even more right to be angry and, and they are angry, but oftentimes what I was, uh, you know, in speaking with them and talking to them about the book and interviewing them. And I said, well, what do you want out of this? What, what, you know, if you had a hope for, for, you know, your story to be heard, what would you want to come of it? And, and they would say, well, I want it to be effective. You know, I, I, I want, I don't want this to happen to other people in the same way it's happened to me. And I thought a lot about that effectiveness, effective storytelling. Part of the problem is, is uh, rage is it's hard to communicate well 
in an interesting way for a long period of time. Mm. And that's why Axel and I turn to things like humor, or we just use a kind of observation and then move on. We show, we don't tell in a certain sense. And that's, I think there are, there are spaces for telling. And in the book, I do tell, I don't just show. And I, I try to talk about my rage in certain moments, but I felt it was more impactful to have certain moments to show that uh, or to expound upon my own rage and anger and many other moments to just let the migrant stories speak for themselves as much as possible and stay out of the way. The book is full of scenes where you recognize how different things are for you because of being an American. And you use various shades of that to try and solve problems or get help. You know, sometimes you play the important American who's flashing a a passport. And then sometimes you play the idiot gringo who doesn't know how things work. It's all Mm -hmm. quite interesting and amusing. And of course, when you're panicked and in survival mode, you'll do anything. But you were, you know, quite successful in those various roles. Do you think now that you know more, that you would be able to bring more resources to any of those problems you encountered? Or has the landscape just changed in all different ways? Or how do you feel now about those strategies that you used? That's a good question. I think yeah, some of the things that I was doing this is back when I, I was 24. I'm, I'm 31 now, so mm-hmm. about seven years ago. And so I, I'm maybe a little more credentialed in some ways. I uh, I've maybe saved up a little bit more money than I was when I was a broke 24 year old just coming out of college. Yeah. So I might have a, a few more resources, but part of the kind of those moments where I felt like I had to play up in, in Americanness to to my advantage in some way, whether I was yeah being the important American flashing a passport, uh, Fulbright scholar, and I'm here, blah, 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 or like idiot gringo. Um, oh, don't mess with me. I have no idea what's going on. So don't, don't worry <laughs> if I see anything suspicious, I'm too dumb to understand what's happening. Right. Right. And oftentimes when I felt like I had to do that, and, and sometimes I, I continued my work with, with migrants today. I'm in a PhD program currently, and I'm writing a a PhD on similar themes, though they're more academic in some ways. Mm -hmm. When I turn to those kinds of stereotypes to help me out, often it's because I've, I've, I'm in a situation where you can't easily call upon any other resources. You know, it's unclear what you need to do in that moment. And you kind of go with your gut a little bit about what will be most helpful to you. But it's often when you're with migrants, you're often in remote places. There's not anyone else to call f- for help sometimes. You know, you, you, you can't just pick up the phone and you're thinking, hmm, this guy might be a gang member. Or, Ooh, this person might be sent by the cartel to kidnap someone right now. What do I do? You have to kind of, or at least I have found that the, the one thing I can really do is kind of lean into these, these personalities or tropes of Americans to kind of act my way out uh, or into a situation uh, and try to calm things down a little bit. So, so it, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I don't know if I have a, a perfect straightforward answer for you, but the thing is, I think if I had to say one thing, it's like, if you're traveling with migrants, if you are a migrant yourself, part of the real problem is that the, there aren't many other resources to draw upon in that yeah. moment. So, and somebody I think mentioned also in their Amazon review that this would make a terrific movie. And I feel the same. So now I have to ask you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, if you sell the movie rights to the book, or perhaps you already have, who do you want to play you in the movie? 
<laughs> uh, who do I want to play? Oh, geez. You know, I, um, I would love to sell the movie rights. I don't have m- much news I can share right now on, on that. But, but uh, what I, I, I guess I haven't allowed myself to think about who would play me too much just because uh, I don't want to get my hopes up or something. But mm-hmm. I have talked to Axel about it. And Axel oh. says he wants Denzel Washington to play uh, him. To so. play him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got, we've got one down. We just we've need the other one. <laughs> we've got one. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I told him, I don't know. Denzel Washington might be, I don't know. Maybe he would be interested. I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I would be happy. Anyone who wants to play me, could play me. <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. To go back to Axel. Well, so we should mention here that this idea of two narrators. So part of the book is written uh, from Levi's point of view, and then part of it is written also in Axel's voice. And there's a really touching place where he talks about what it was like for him to go through high school and see other people go to college. But he writes, but for me, it was just the underground and under the table and undercover. That's such an interesting phrase that, yeah, this whole idea of under and not being recognized. So he has a section here I'll read. I moved around between Long Island and Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx trying to hustle up work. I was washing dishes at a Mexican restaurant down the street, but that wouldn't pay the bills. So I'd go mop floors in an office, still wouldn't pay the bills. For a while, I was working construction and living in the back of a trailer with another worker, a Puerto Rican guy from the Bronx, just to save on rent. But guess what? That still ain't paying the bills. And what you don't understand is that once you're illegal, it's like other illegal things is attracted to you. You're illegal and you're working with lots of other illegal people. And then like all these other kinds of strange things start popping up and strange people, strange people offering you money to do things that ain't exactly illegal, but maybe don't feel fully legal either. Thought that was such an interesting commentary about living on the fringe like that and how it's not just you but somehow your milieu now is filled with people that are also strange even to you like you enter almost a different orbit or world or something it was really very evocative writing really well done yeah i i couldn't agree more um that's something that Axel and I really wanted to try to explain to people who maybe weren't working with undocumented people very much or other kind of marginal characters. Um, you know, all, all the time I hear like, well, why don't they just legalize themselves or, you know, or stop selling drugs or, or whatever, you know, whatever kind of criticism comes with these kinds of marginalized people. And, and what Axel and I tried to do really hard and something Axel wanted to say in his voice was to talk about how he'd ended up in the situation and, despite the fact that he desired a different kind of life for himself, it was completely forbidden. Uh, it was completely off limits. And so he had to resort to other means to mm-hmm. survive, to pay the bills. And that's what led him to hacking as well. Um, this is not something we've, we've talked very much about, but, you know, of course, hackers in, in the title of the book, Border mm-hmm. Hacker. And basically, as Axel saw his friends going off to college and he says moving to the city and getting good jobs, him being under the table and undercover and underground meant that he had to figure out another way to make money mm-hmm. through a, a, a kind of a, an interesting path that I, I won't get into here for time's sake. Axel figured out 
he basically taught himself how to hack and fix computers. And he did it, you know, he's very insistent as a means of survival because it was the, suddenly the skill that, that uh, few people had um, and that he felt he could really take advantage of. As well, he says, I think really interestingly, because his, his body, his physical body was so barred from doing the things that everyone else's bodies are, are able to do to get a job, to move around freely in the United States, computers for him and hacking suddenly became a way where in the digital world, his body could do much more mm. and could even do more in some sense than, than what my body can do in the digital world, right? I'm, I'm not a hacker. I'm, I'm not particularly good with computers, though I've tried to learn through Axel now more. But, but yeah, so he, he turned to those things as a way to survive and a way to try to make a life um, mm-hmm. as best he could. Yeah, it just speaks to his ingenuity, really, in that way. But yeah, even more this idea of under, right, hacking, which is, yes. you know, definitely, yeah, this idea of uh, under underground kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about in the book, and we've touched on a few of these things, is the subtlety of some of these issues. And I was thinking about the thin lines that there are in the book and the slippery slope that you get into with this kind of existence. You get moved into a place which allegedly is supposed to be a place for you to stay, but then it turns out in order to stay there, you have to work. And then it turns out that the doors are locked at night for your safety, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've now been imprisoned by your keeper. Yeah, always be careful when something is done for your safety. Yes. And then uh, eventually you recognize that this isn't really a place to stay with work attached to it. You're actually a slave. And Mm -hmm. I I was thinking about this idea of being helped versus being exploited about being given housing, but then discovering that it's a trap. Mm-hmm. In the book, there are a lot of people who function in such a way that they're applauded as heroes in official circles, but really not seen that way by the people that they're allegedly helping. And there are almost no heroes in your story. That's one of the things that's that's quite impactful is there are no easy answers. And basically, everyone seems to be in it for themselves. And so, yeah, you just constantly are reminded that no one is truly going to help you unless there's something in it for them. It's really a depressing and dark aspect of the stories. There's one person who's uh, interesting who shows up a lot is this uh, Irineo, if I'm saying Irineo, yes. Irineo. Yes. Can you tell, I, I don't know if you can talk about him. He's kind of a touchy character, but if you can tell us about him, I'd be interested to to hear kind of your summary of him. Sure. Yeah. There are some things I can say, some things I can't uh, generally about the migrant activists. I, I think I, I can start with a preface, uh, which I included in, in the book as well, that uh, the first draft of this book included much more overt uh, and already there's plenty, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of documented in the book, migrant activists or humanitarian abuse and exploitation of migrants. It, it's, it's throughout the book. Yeah. But the first tra- draft of the book had even more and perhaps even more egregious abuse and exploitation generally by some of these migrant activists. And um, we couldn't put them in the book because our publisher's attorney was afraid that we would be sued. So Part of the book is also a call that hopefully other anthropologists or journalists might continue to follow up on some of the research that Axel and I have done. 
and to try to see what else is out there and things I can't talk about exactly. But what I can say about Irineo Mujica is that if you know anything about migrant caravans, you already know who Irineo Mujica is because he, he, or, he organizes essentially all of the largest migrant caravans that always make in, into the news, especially the big one, the 2018 one that happened right around the midterm elections that Trump was really vilifying and tweeting about all the time and saying everyone was coming to kill us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Irineo organized that caravan and he's organized many others, including there was just a big caravan that went through Mexico in December, uh, between October and December of 2021. So he's still oh. very active. He's still very much organizing them. He And he, he runs two migrant shelters in Mexico currently. And what I can say about Irineo is uh, the book starts off um, kind of introducing us to Irineo. He, he organizes this caravan that Axel and I meet on in 2015. At the time, it's the, it is the caravan that I believe changed all caravans in Mexico before they were pretty demure, mostly religious processions that priests organized. And the one in 2015 that we marched on was the first one to, uh, to, as far as I know, that wasn't organized by a priest, but was organized by an activist. That activist was Irineo. Ah. And um, his whole idea was to really try to, you know, he, he said he wanted to call out the U.S. and Mexico's secret immigration pact and expose what was happening, which I thought was really interesting and really good. But I quickly realized that not everything was what it seemed, especially when it came to Irineo's shelter. He ran a shelter at the time in this tiny little town called Chawites, Oaxaca. And it was the worst shelter I'd ever been in. And I'd worked mm-hmm. in a few shelters by that point. It was, it was, a, the, the conditions were despicable. There was, you know, the, the plumbing was terrible. The sleeping quarters were set up incredibly poorly. Nothing was clean. And the book, one of the kind of main moments of the book is when I uh, enter Irineo's bedroom. He, he had a room that he, he kind of was, he slept in that was off to the side from everyone else. So he might've shared it with a, a volunteer or two every once in a while, but it was mainly his bedroom. Mm-hmm. I went in to grab my backpack, which I had left in his bedroom. When I went in, I, I saw Irineo sitting on his bed and he was in his underwear and on his lap was a young boy. I don't know exactly the young boy's age, but my estimate is approximately 12 years old, who was also sitting on, he was, he was also in his underwear, sitting on Irineo's lap. And Irineo had his hand on the boy's lower stomach. And when I, when I walked in on them, uh, of course, I didn't expect to see that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had grabbed my backpack and Irineo just very quietly pushed me back out the door, closed the door behind me. I have since, you know, tried to tell other activists in Mexico about what I've seen. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. Mm-hmm. But basically, uh, long story short, I suppose I could say, I, I don't know that anything has ever come of my uh, me trying to sound an alarm or talk to other people about it. Irineo still runs two shelters today, as I said, um, in Mexico and uh as far as I can tell from his social media seems to continue to be collecting money for his activism. And, and there's not a lot of information out there about, about those shelters or what goes on there. And I would love for more journalists to visit his shelters uh, and, and perhaps write stories about his activism in general. Yeah. It's an interesting thought that when you have that many people who are so vulnerable taking the specifics out of it, the specific individuals out of it, you can see where people who have power over that kind of vulnerable population 
could end up easily abusing that power, right? It, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. hum, humans are uh, not always magnificent creatures. And yeah, you can see where these problems could start to arise, right? When you've got these people who are in such dire straits. Absolutely. And, you know, something I, I, I wanted to communicate that right from the beginning in my book, I start off the book by saying, the first thing you need to know about migrant caravans is that no one is there who has somewhere better to be. No yeah. one. And, and I meant that just as much for the organizers of migrant caravans as for the migrants themselves, right? Like this, these are marginal figures who can suddenly wield immense power yeah. over very poor people's lives. And there isn't an apparatus really to check up on what's happening at, at shelters, no matter who's running them, no matter how quote unquote good or bad I think they are, or other people think they are, there is no oversight generally to check in on what's happening. And so suddenly you have the world's poorest and most desperate and marginalized people and invisible people, right? And they, they can quickly be manipulated and taken advantage of because no one is watching and no one often even knows that they're there to begin with. So you also talk about the plight of the immigrants changing from U.S. president to another. Uh, but you're, it's very clear in the book that it's just a slightly different color of the same horror and cruelty that we saw under a different administration. And so for those in the audience who think that immigration policies were terrible under Trump or are terrible now under Biden, whatever terrible means to them, can you give us a sense of what's going on with U.S. policy? Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the most frustrating things for me is that people, yeah, as as you've rightly indicated, no matter whether you vote red or blue, you think that somehow voting that way is going to change U.S. immigration policy. And the fact of the matter is it's not. um, There is a steady and obvious increase in U.S. immigration policy for funding from um, I, I, in the book, I, I specifically trace it from Obama to Biden, because those are the years that I was really working in Mexico and writing this book. But it's before, you know, we can say Bush, we can we can talk about Clinton. But for the last 30 years or 40 years, the history of the American U.S. immigration system is a steady militarized increase of the U.S.-Mexico border it is uh, that increase. It, it, it's an increase in every way, an increase in funding, an increase in militarization, an increase in border externalization into Mexico, an increase in deportations and detentions, uh, an increase in migrant deaths in mm. the desert. And it does not change between presidents. The idea that if you are voting for Biden or you voted for Obama and you thought that they were going to uh, create a more humanitarian, quote, immigration system, uh, you're wrong. It, it just hasn't, it, it's not happening. Uh, Biden has largely, he's continued to build off of the policies that the Trump administration was enacting, very anti-immigrant policies. And in turn, Trump built those policies off of Obama's anti-immigrant uh, policies. And so you see a steady increase. So this this kind of fiction that if we elect a Democrat into office, that things will become more migrant friendly, whether you like that or not, right? Republicans yeah, exactly. would like that probably. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not true. It, it's, it's not true. And that's something I really wanted to highlight in the book is if we want change, if, you know, I, of course, am very pro-immigrant and, and want to largely dismantle uh, our militarized U.S. Uh, immigration system, 
Um, if we want to change, I, I don't see turning to the Democratic Party as a, as a particularly effective way to, to achieve that change. Yeah, and if our audience is uh, totally depressed now, I'll take you down an even, <laughs> even darker hole. One of the really interesting parts of the book, but but maybe one of the most sickening, is the uh, section where you talk about working for an immigration legal nonprofit in Washington, D.C. And it was just really fascinating to have that juxtaposed against your personal experience uh, in Mexico with the caravan. And as you yourself learned to navigate that system, you found yourself coaching migrant children to exaggerate their stories and their danger and their abuse, because that was their only chance to get into the U.S. So you were helping them trying to navigate this system. And you left that place to go to graduate school. And you make it clear, you know, in several places in the book that you don't judge the attorneys who are associated with that nonprofit in a negative way, but there is this terrible feeling of hopelessness in that whole section because of the extremely low rates of admission into the U.S. And so you just have to create this unbelievable, not unbelievable, but a believable but extraordinary narrative in order to have even the slightest hope of getting into the U.S., of being admitted to the U.S. Has anything changed with that? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, your, your audience is going to be sad. No, th- things have gotten worse since, oh. since I, I worked at these nonprofits, unfortunately. This is part of, you know, uh, again, the, 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 the way of 21st century immigration uh, in wealthy Western countries now is largely to try to dismantle the asylum system because... So much of the world's poor are becoming so desperate um, as climate change happens, as their countries continue to be looted by U.S. corporations, there's no work, et cetera, et cetera. We get many more people coming to our countries asking for help, right? And the powers that be don't want them to come. And so largely uh, the U.S. asylum system, as I see it in the asylum system in Europe, is is being dismantled and mm. and the way to dismantle it is to deny more and more people. So part of this coaching that that I was doing with these young kids is it, when you when you have an asylum claim, right? You have to prove that your life is in danger in your country of origin. But if you're a 13-year-old child, even if your life is in danger, um it's very hard to express that, right? Yeah. You, you, and and so my job was try to help them express that in these interviews, but what we found so difficult and frustrating was Poverty is, it, it endangers your life. Yeah. You can die from poverty, but poverty doesn't count. It doesn't right. qualify you for asylum. It, what's interesting about the U.S. asylum system is that judges often now, if, if, uh, if something happens in your country that endangers everyone, bizarrely, that also disqualifies you because the judges just say, nope, like that's a, that's a thing that everyone has to deal with. It's just a reality and a natural part of being Central American, for instance, the gang violence, right? Like we could say like, this is something that judges often settles because gangs threaten everyone in Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras, then you can't qualify for asylum for gang threats because it happens to everyone. You're not unique. You're not special in that way. You're not fleeing a, a uniquely dangerous thing even though it's dangerous for everyone. So this was, this was the real frustrating thing, but I, I I do want to say, okay, so I've talked a lot about sad things, right. And everyone feels very depressed and I feel, I can feel depressed too, but Axel and I both 
want to emphasize, we believe that things can still change. And, and I deeply believe that we can still fight and should fight for a different kind of world. And I'm inspired by other social movements that have happened in the U.S. in the past and that are happening again right now, uh, particularly for, for your viewer or for your listeners. I, I think, you know, um, thinking about the civil rights movement in the United States is incredibly interesting because we did not believe, no one in the civil rights movement believed that you could just vote a Republican or a Democrat into the presidency and then everything would be okay. People marched in the streets. Mm. They organized neighborhood committees. They organized, um, you know, food relief for, for poor, impoverished Black communities. They made intense demands over many decades that had nothing to do with the electoral system. And if we want change, if we want to demilitarize our immigration system, if we want to stop throwing kids in cages, and it happens under Trump and it happens under Biden, if we want to welcome people into our country, whose countries that our government has destroyed and our corporations have destroyed, then we need to stop thinking that we can just elect people into power who'll do that. We have to do that. We have to march with them. We have to be on the streets and demand that. And so, I mean, that 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 would be my I, I know it's not easy. I, I know it's not easy, but but I do still think that change is possible. But it, it has to be change that that we that we do to get together, not just hope that uh, an elected official will do. Yeah, I think we're realizing that voting is perhaps doesn't have the power that we thought it did. We've just gone through a primary here in California. And I have to say you know, the results are not surprising, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, everything was kind of predetermined ahead of time, which, mm-hmm. yeah, so it does make you realize that there, we're going to have to take action in some other way. So anything specific that you'd like for us to do, Levi, about this issue? It's a great question. I mean, I, I again, I, I, I don't know if, if I have such a, uh, a wonderful answer for you there where I can say, do this one thing yeah. and everything will change, right? That's something that Axel and I, I think you, you've alluded to this in the book. We try very hard not to give people a quick solution because mm-hmm. this is something, this is a system that's evolved over decades, right? To be so lethal and deadly. And it will take decades of work probably to, to end it. Mm-hmm. But my call to your listeners and to our readership in general is to start thinking about ways that you can work in your own community to organize. Um, and that can be really simple or it can be really complicated. We're all very busy people. Everyone has to work jobs. The economy isn't great. I get it, right? Like, But it could be, you know, volunteering at a, at a shelter that works with migrants, if you have time. It could be in this moment, if you just need to make a donation to a, a, a migrant nonprofit, that, that could work as well. But what I want Americans to really start thinking about is that we can't just give money and we can't just vote our way out of this. We're going to have to start making intense personal connections uh, with people who are not like us. Mm-hmm. And that's something I wanted to show in the book that that this, you know, country bumpkin, white, small town, southerner, me, uh, and this Afro-Latino, New York hustler, Axel, could still share something, that, that there's something real there, that we have a real bond and friendship and relationship. Uh, and it's not easy, but that is, for me, one of the, the grounds of, of new politics. That's where politics springs from, uniting over these differences rather than 
ignoring them or thinking it's too difficult. Uh, we have to start working with people who are not like us. Undocumented migrants are perhaps one of the most obvious examples of that for, for Americans generally, right? That these people are, are legally not like us, but we must go there and try to build relationships with them as best we can and listen to their political demands and what they would like as well. And again, there's precedent here. There's, there's precedent in US social movements of, of people who are not like each other getting together organizing together and making demands that change the course of, of the history of our country. And we can continue to do that. Yeah. And I'll go back to the book here because sometimes we make it sound as though working cross-culturally as you and Axel did, is just really hard work, but it, it, what's, what shows in the book is it's also really fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah it's really, he's such an interesting character and, and you are too. And watching the two of you develop this friendship and the give and take and the, you know, how you hassle each other and then help each other. It's really fun. And the book is actually in a lot of ways also fun because of the enlightenment that we get from that. And it's not preachy, you know, it's not a, a drag to read. It's, it's stories and it's people. And I think as human beings, we're really attracted to that. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to just plug the book here again. I, I really Thank think you. that, that um, my listeners would enjoy it and, you know, it would be an opportunity to learn a little bit more that many of us, at least in San Diego, are curious about, but don't really know very much about. So I think it's available on Amazon and all the places where uh, good books are sold. And uh, yeah, before I let you go, Levi, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope I haven't come off as too too preachy on this interview. I've tried to, <laughs> hard to make to make the book not preachy, but um, I can get on my soapbox a little bit. But but um, no, yeah, I, I think it's exactly right what you said. That that if I could try to communicate a message about the book, it's it's not preachy. We've tried very hard to not just do kind of an overt political analysis. It's about friendship. It's about love. Axel and I actually, you know tried very hard to write this book. The structure of the book is written as a romance. It's about two straight men falling in love platonically, but, but it's about friendship and, and that encounter and, and uh, coming together and having fun and enjoying life, even when things are dark. And I hope that's a message that, that resonates with, with people today as we live in, in times that feel dark. Uh, I, I'm still not a pessimist. Uh, even, even if it's hard to be an optimist, there, there's still life is still worth living and, and, and being with that, you know, when I'm with Axel, I, I just feel the most myself in some way. I feel so full. And I hope that comes across in the book. Yeah. The book is very enriching for sure. All right, Levi, thank you so much for coming on the show. I so appreciate your time and thank you so much for writing the book. I think it's really an important work that you've given us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>